Thanks, Joel. Uh, I, I've done quite a lot of these. I interview a lot of authors, and I love it. And when I'm asked if I want to interview an author, I say yes straight away. And then I started to think a little bit more, having said yes to this, and I actually tried to extricate myself from the job. For, for one very sort of practical, technical reason, talking to somebody who's been written about and somebody who did the writing about on the same stage is, I think, quite a challenge. I'm not quite sure how we're going to manage that. And then secondly, two old white men talking about a younger black man. In South Africa, you have to consider those kinds of things, the optics of that. But I spoke to the publishers. They said they discussed it and they thought it would be okay if I did it. And then it's Robert McBride, you know. And Brian does say in the book that we want, we want heroes and we want villains. We want to understand who's black, who's white in the moral sense. And I'm pretty certain that Robert McBride is a really good guy. As I'm pretty certain that Jeremy Beery is a pretty good guy. But they're two people who have been the subject of a lot of negative publicity, uh, a lot of negative conversation about them. And even though you are reasonably sure that the negatives have been planted deliberately to sabotage a career, you, you know, I think he's a, you are a good guy. Not an angel. So, I mean, there is grey everywhere. Nobody is entirely morally pure, or some are entirely morally impure, but very few. And so, but, but then I just read the book again and again, and I thought, as Jill said, what a fascinating story. But, uh, Brian, start with you briefly. Um, you started to write a sort of biography of an MK cell, and because Robert McBride was the most charismatic member of that cell? I mean, why, why did the book turn out to be much more biographical about Robert McBride than about the MK cell in which he operated? Well, I think that I, my original intention was to do, if that's the right word, a biography of an MK cell, all, all, the, uh, all the members, their backgrounds, uh, their influences, what made them join, their training, um, uh, but, but uh, as and, and I include all that and, and all the characters in in, in the same unit. Uh, but Robert really is is the most uh, active, the most dramatic, and and <laughs> by force of personality, he's a man of action. Uh, but he's also a very interesting and thoughtful man. And and uh, in fact, what what originally attracted me, I, I read when I was I I, I I'd lost my South African citizenship, in fact, at that point. And I read a, a few paragraphs in the London Guardian, which just described uh, uh, that Robert had freed, in a very dramatic incident from Edenvale Hospital, his comrade and very close friend Gordon, who was on, in the ICU unit. They went up with their guns, fought their way through the, the, his police um, uh, guards, and got Gordon out and smuggled him out. And then when Robert was arrested and on trial, facing the death penalty. Gordon, who, who was, went abroad for, 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 for uh, medical help, and he still got the three bullets in him, uh, fought in exile with CNC uh, structures to, to be allowed back into South Africa. And in fact, it was Chris Harney who finally 
listened to him and said, okay, you can do it. And Gordon's plan was to come back to South Africa, kidnap the trial judge in exchange for Robert. And I thought, you know, take away apartheid, take away race, take away all the other folder off. Here is a fantastic story of loyalty and friendship. Put in the rest of it, and you've got all the moral complexities of South Africa. So I just thought, that's something I want to write. And the, the, the original book ends in 1991, fairly soon after the then South African Ministry of Justice had announced that Robert's death sentence had been commuted to life imprisonment. He, he had spent 1,463 days on death row. And the book ends there. And then, so that's 320 pages. And then you have another 40-odd pages about everything that has happened to Robert McBride since 1991. And there has been an enormous amount that has happened to him and around him and that he has made happen. So, again, why, why not rewrite um, and, and take the latter part of his career in the same degree of depth that you took the early part? Well, the, the, the early part um, you know, is based on interviews, and I had terrific access at the time to all the members of the unit, and I stayed with Robert's parents in Wentworth, where, where he grew up outside Durban, uh, and, and, and so I had a tremendous amount of material. I also had you know, stacks that high of the three trials of, of, of Robert, of his father, and of Gordon, uh, and, and I don't think, looking back, at the time it was all uh, very immediate, and I wanted to get that across. I think anyone writing about it today, it would be quite measured, more historical. And I wanted to get across the drama of the time, which is quite difficult even to remember. Um, and it's interesting to, 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 um, to, to perhaps to, to, to remark that the original version, which was published in England under the title Till Babylon Falls, uh, was not widely distributed here. And many bookshops actually refused to stock it which gives you an idea of the atmosphere of the time. And so, with the encouragement of Philip Tafelberg, Robert got out of prison and was almost immediately sent to take charge of the euphemistically called peace desk in Tafelhong, which was a civil war. And suddenly he was, you know, bullets were flying over his head again. So barely, he didn't have a honeymoon with his wife, who he'd married on death row. Um, and barely a time to breathe before, and it's been a roller coaster ride, ups and downs, uh, since. So I think, in, in many ways, that the, what happened afterwards is as dramatic, but it's in the context of the so-called New South Africa. And, and let's talk now to the man about whom we have been speaking and about whom this book was written. Uh, the original title was in reference to something Robert said that he's going to keep fighting until Babylon falls, until apartheid has been defeated. Um, Robert, your father was a much, much more militant man than you were, certainly um, in your youth and your, into your teens. Um, and Derek is still alive. Well, he certainly was alive at the time that this book was published, and I, I hope that he is still. Your mom has has gone. And you, it, it was a moment I didn't realise that you were a, a top-class rugby player, but it appears that you had a real gift for the game. And it, it was an incident. It was an incident in a rugby game that kind of kick-started your political radicalism. Yeah, in, initially we, we had wanted to avoid 
to the reality of the world. So we, within our SACOS organization... Can you talk a little more into the mic? Okay, the SACOS organizations, there was no, you could make no progress because the view of SACOS was no normal sport in abnormal society, uh, which was a correct position. But some of us decided we, we want to try our luck and go in the rebel unions and see if somehow we can find a way out. That, of course, was long before there was any professionalism attached to rugby. And, uh, and I, I got to play for a, a white team and a, in a process of selection, a racial comment was made about people generally who look like me and I, I didn't respond to it. Of course, we wanted to, to have a go at each other during practice. Um, but the enormity of what had taken place hit me later. And with all the other stimuli of the madness of the city, the country that we lived in, all of a sudden fall into place. You go and play rugby with the guys, you show you're good, you, you, you get chosen, and the first response is a racial comment about you. And um, it was a situation of, well, we can't hide away from what is there anymore. And of course there would be other uh, stimuli and other developments um, some you'd read about, some you'd be personally aware of. So it wasn't just one incident, it's one incident that got me thinking um, about the situation. Yeah, I think um, Brian suggests this was a, a key moment in it. Uh, Robert was selected to play for the first rugby team for this club in a position that a, a white player thought that he owned the position. And in the changing room, he overheard another player commiserating with the dejected lock forward who'd been dropped to make way for him. Gary, don't worry about it, said one white sportsman to the other. Robert is just a bushy. And this just a bushy um, then changed course, became more political, Claire more involved, met Gordon Webster. There's, there's an enormous amount here that we're sort of eliding over simply because of time. And it was Gordon Webster who, who left uh, the country first to to go and fight, and then he came back and recruited you into into a cell, and then you started um, you started the program of sabotaging. Primarily, the program was sabotaging electric transformers, and letting people know through darkness that the ANC had not gone, the ANC had not disappeared. The fight for light, in a political sense, was continuing, and. You say, this is what I had been waiting for. I felt no nerves, no butterflies. I was well prepared. This kind of thing did not worry me. I was now able to do what I was good at. This was made for me. I was born for this. Indeed, it was a great relief that, um, I think to give some context, the ANC was not all over. None of the liberation movements were all over. All over. They were... And it was not um, fashionable to belong to the liberation movement because you would land up in prison. So firstly to thanks. so to reach the ANC to become part of an effective organized force against 
racism. It was not easy, even if you wanted it. And suddenly for me, it worked out at the right time of my life. And it was also at the stage where I realized I can no longer reconcile myself and coexist with a system that is completely mad um, and denies people their humanity. And there are very in various instances um, that brought that realization about. And one of them was the, the announcement, I think it was in 1983, that the tricameral system would kick off. And most of us in um, KZN, who, who are of mixed race, we usually have a direct relative who is African. And in the envisaged tricameral system, it was to allow some of our family the right to vote, even though it was a sham vote, and another lot of the family of the same blood not to be able to vote. So it's a law that makes some of your family less human than others. And there was something perverse about it. And for me, I could no longer, after a great amount of turmoil, reconcile myself to coexist in that environment. It, it, for me to stay sane, I needed to fight against it. That's really it here. How many operations did you conduct? Did you ever count? How many transformers did you blow up? How many electricity substations did you destroy? Well, I think maybe the, the best way to answer it is that our commanders told us we mustn't over-escalate. Because we, at that stage, I, I left college. I was in the third year of a four-year higher diploma in education. And then I worked 24 hours every day dealing with means of smuggling in weapons and in reconnaissance uh, for operations. So we did a lot of operations. Um, I think, I just remember trying to count them in my mind now. But it included um, power stations and substations all over KZN, um, crude oil pipelines, um, industrial chemical storage places. Um, yeah, so there's quite a few. It's, um, and, and one of the really interesting bits of the book is to to know better how these campaigns were, were carried out. Robert spent a lot of time driving from Durban to Botswana to consult with his ANC comrades there to, to pick up arms and ammunition and his skill with metalwork and his father's skill with metalwork um, enabled the building of false compartments in cars and buckies and caravans and the various tricks that they used in order to distract the attention of the guards at the Botswana border post to make sure that they weren't searched because if they had been searched they would have been serious trouble because they were carrying mostly um, chemicals, explosives, but occasionally AK-47s and guns as well. And then there is the incident which, for which you are most notorious, the bombing of the Why Not and Magoo bars. And at your trial, you 
you said that you were so angry about the fact that the state of emergency had been declared that you felt a need to escalate. You felt you needed to take the anger away from the substations, which were often remote and so on, and take them into the heart of Whitehood. And there was disagreement in the testimony between you and one of your co-accused. You said it was his idea, he said it was your idea. And then it turns out in the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, proceedings that you were actually acting on orders, that Abu Bakr Ashmael had given you an order to do what you did. Why did you not say that at your trial? Uh, I think the first aspect is that the organization, that is the ANC, was coming under pressure from the Americans and the British, in particular from Thatcher herself, um, and there were comments from Thatcher um, not willing to support the release of Mandela and referring to Mandela as a terrorist. And there were campaigns launched by South African military intelligence in America against the ANC. Wherever Tambo spoke, um, people would turn up there and demonstrate against the ANC. Um, some of the people involved in that, um, it's an aide to uh, Newt Gingrich, I forget his name now, was part of that with Craig Williamson, an organization called Rock Longreach. And that was their job. So we, were, we only became aware later of that. But what was clear was that there was pressure on the ANC. Um, and it was important that, um, so a year before the decision to escalate and to act with less restraint was taken at the Cubway Conference in August 1985, in which it was described in the Sichaba as a council of war. And it was in that context I was given the instructions. But all of us who are in struggle from my experience, have a great sense of altruism, that you're in a collective, and the sense of collective is much stronger than it is nowadays, and there was an expectation that you you protect your organization, and that's what I went about doing. I also was aware, even at that young stage, about the demoralizing effect it would have if more than one of us goes to death row. Um, the area I come from is not known as the most progressive in terms of resistance. Uh, as most of us are, I suppose, still too closely related to each other for a, for a proper resistance to take place. Uh, we still have different feelings and sentiments pulling at us. Um, so it was important that we we went ahead and uh, made it as difficult as possible um, for us to all get long years imprisonment and to avoid a death sentence. And ultimately, I took a decision upon myself that uh, I will go with a particular version. It was easier to suggest things to uh, my co-accused, the, the witness, the state witness, the guy who turns 
state evidence in a sense that he was not a good witness. So matters that were suggested to him and associated with other aspects, he quickly agreed to. More importantly, because he was really feeling uncomfortable to testify against me. So he agreed with all the badgering of my senior counsel. So the issue was to protect the ANC. And I'd rather be the one who just sacrificed than many more. And it's clear, I mean, Brian never understood why it is when you came back from Botswana before that operation, why you were so distracted, why you were snapping at people, why you were so difficult to deal with. And in retrospect, we understand that it is because you had been given this order and you were not entirely comfortable about carrying this order out. And afterwards, you and Greta went to Johannesburg and Brian writes, Robert could not shake this feeling of horror. I was in a state of shock before I was just carrying out an operation. The effects only hit me later when I was not hyped up. Then the emotions came in and I felt bad. I felt terrible. I felt disgusted with myself and ashamed. I felt I would never be forgiven. Before, I was doing it for the army, for the freedom of the people. The very planning and the act of placing the bomb distanced me. It was mechanical. It was like the bomb did it and I only pulled the pin. At the time, it was quite practical, something to carry out. Afterwards, I realized the enormity of the whole thing. The humanness of the suffering came to me. If they'd been soldiers, it would have been a legitimate target. Civilians were not a legitimate target because they were women. The three people who died were women. I felt it all the more. I felt that I was stooping to the same level as the enemy. I was worried all the time. I was irritable and upset. It's 30, 32 years on now from that. Yeah. And how, how does Robert McBride feel now about that episode of his life? Well, um, as I've said at the TRC, and I've said on a number of occasions before, I can justify from a political position, wearing a political hat, um, in the same way I suppose the French resistance fighter would justify throwing a hand grenade into a restaurant where Nazi soldiers are sitting and eating, um, or someone from the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, or any of the partisans facing the Nazi occupation in Yugoslavia or Soviet Union. So from a political point of view, and in terms of what was going on in the world and what we've seen hitherto, I could justify it as a political activist. Um, and also, as part of the policy of my organization, which was after Kabwe to take um, the struggle into white areas, to act with less restraint, not to wait for soldiers to be armed before you attack them or policemen. Uh, the, the concept, the very notion of using a car bomb, which by its very nature does not only harm the intended targets, um, is itself a problem. It was not the first time the ANC used a car bomb. It wasn't the last time either. And uh, you can go on to the, which I've often done in moments of weakness, looking at what's the difference between a missile shot from an aeroplane down, which often happened to um, people in the frontline states, or a 
car bomb parked right next to the target. The difference is only the method of delivery of the explosive device. There's also the cynical part, which says, well, maybe if I had an aeroplane and I dropped it from the sky, it would be, it would be okay. Um, it seems like when bombs are dropped from the sky on Tatsinga, um, on places where ANC lived in Angola, there wasn't much fuss about it. It was kind of okay, except when it came home. So you go through the whole period, and I had a lot of time to do that. And often resorted to it, this is important, but it looks at justification for myself. And then I view the world as a continuum. Um, in other words, that was the past. The more I justify what I did, why I did it, even within the um, unclear situation, of what had happened, the more we get pulled back to it, the more someone would say something provocative to me, and I respond, the more we get pulled back to where we were. So for me, it was important not to be stuck on the justification side. If the people in South Africa who were oppressing us were foreigners and would leave one day, like Vietnam, it wouldn't really matter what you say or how to work out the morality of war. But these were fellow South Africans, and that is where my view of this, not as a political activist, soldier, a saboteur, a fighter, but as a human being, is that I was responsible for hurting and killing South Africans. And that I'm not happy with. And I don't feel comfortable with that. The fact that we had to have a go at each other and kill each other just to be accepted as equals and to have our full rights uh, is an indication of the perversion of the system. Um, and it's, it's, it's it's often filled my mind with concern that why were we not given our rights as part of the principle of common and equal humanity? Why did we have to fight for it? And by studying history, I've realized that all over the world, different colors and different races and different periods, human beings have been opp oppressing others. And all along, wherever it's been, others have resisted the oppression, which sought to diminish them as human beings. So it's a natural instinct to fight against um, oppression, subjugation, humiliation. Um, but as we know, the Second World War would not have been won against a racist, nasty regime by passive resistance. Um, neither would the Soviets have been able to drive out the Germans from their country if they stood in a line like Gandhi and sang songs and chanted away. It wouldn't have stopped. 
moral imperatives only work on people who are susceptible to receiving moral messages. But racial superiority is built on the idea of someone is less than you. So how you engage with them, either in war or how you write about them, is to diminish them. Um, and and that's what takes place, and that is why we were treated badly, because others saw us as less than them. Um, yeah, so on the one hand, uh, politically, historically, similarly, can be justified, but as a human being, I, do, um, I don't like it, and I'm not happy with it. I'm not proud of it. And Brian makes a very important point in the book that from the date of the declaration of the armed struggle, the ANC saying peaceful methods of engagement with the NAP government are not working, they're not listening to us, we're moving to the armed struggle. From that date until the, um, the coming, uh, until the 2nd of February 1990, I think it was, 66 white people were killed acts of violence committed by the ANC and the PAC. That's three fewer than one incident committed by apartheid forces against black people, Sharpeville. 69 people were killed at Sharpeville. Over a 30-year period, 66 white people were killed. And yet, those 66 white lives are lionized, not everywhere, but in key sectors of society. And it's interesting that, that this man to my right is demonized for his involvement in Magoo Why Not in a way that is quite hard to understand sometimes, given you know the scale of violence that was being perpetrated primarily by the apartheid forces against black people. And yet, here's this man who's responsible for one act, killing three, but it, it's like he's the devil. How, how do you explain that? I mean, it's well, I think books, a, a lot of it, and obviously the hostility comes from certain elements, let's say, in the white community without beating around the bush. Uh, and it's a very interesting, I mean, uh, Robert mentioned the Cowboy Conference, which changed tactic in 1985, a year before, uh, that, they, that whites had to be hit in some way to make them wake up. And it's really instructive that uh, one of the brothers, in fact, of, of, of the girls who died, at one point planned to kill John, uh, uh, Robert. Uh, you. <laughs> um, worth getting. And, and uh, at the TRC hearing, where, in fact, Robert's um, commander, who gave the order, actually wept, which I haven't seen from the other side, but the family of one of the victims actually said, and what was the, what would be the date of this, 2099, um, okay, so this is 1999, the TRC, the family objected to any idea of amnesty and made the point, why didn't the ANC try and negotiate? And it wasn't actually their lawyers, it was actually the TR commissioner who just said, excuse me, were you unaware that the ANC had tried for 40 years at least, I mean long before from the very start, but in a really active sense to negotiate. And they were just humiliated and thrown back. So this is the ignorance, and this is the family, late in the day of one of the girls that were killed, had no idea that the, 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 re the sole reason the NC turned to a violent struggle 
was because they had been rebuffed in any every. This is the kind of ignorance which it's it's very easy to forget today. But this is the kind of thing that, in a way, Roberts very spectacular his unit very spectacular uh, propaganda campaign all over KwaZulu Natal actually did wake people up. And th why are the people doing it? Is that something you'd like to speak to, or happy to move on? Um, well, after 94, some of us went into the civil service, and, uh, and this goes also to, towards class issues. So you have access to the files and what happened at a particular time. And uh, speaking to officials, I had gone into foreign affairs, and speaking to officials um, there about what's, what was taking place, and said, you know, after why not Magus, there was a lot of scurrying around. And, um, and yet, every day on the border, poor people's children from either side were getting killed, and there was no scurrying around. And one of the issues, which may be coincidental, but the, the National Party government had stopped talking to Mandela for about 18 months. And within three weeks after the Why Not Magus Bar, they resumed discussions with him through Kobe Kosia. So it's one of the things Mandela is recorded as, in terms of speaking to Homolema Mokai, on his reasons for standing firm about my release of no negotiations without McBride's release. So it might be urban legend, or it might be a sequence of events, or the fact that the possibility that the ANC is now in the city and is not easily defeatable, and we were moving towards some kind of um, equilibrium, or as people say, uh, perhaps not in the best form, a balance of terror. If you hate us, we will hit you, and you hate us, we'll hit you back again. So better don't hit us. And that's the situation was moving towards at that stage. And, and after 86, even though there were secret talks carrying on, MK's capabilities escalated. And um, right until October 1989. And in October 89 is very important because it corresponds with the first Rivonia trialers getting released, the last political prisoner getting hung, and the first whispers that in three months' time the ANC will be unbanned. So from 1986 to 89, or the other thing is, for the first time on death row, we received sheets. Uh, so November 89 was important in many ways. It's unimaginable, 1,463 days on death row. It, it, it's, I mean, the, the level of work that you have to do in and on yourself and with friends and family and people who care about you, to, to put that behind you. Um, do you ever, I mean, the, the way that, and it's been written about before, but it's written about very powerfully in this book, 
what happened on the days of executions and a reminder of the fact that Dimitri Sefendis had his own cell right next to where the gallows were. Uh, and it's, it, it really is, I mean, I'll go back to that word, it's unimaginable for, hasn't, for somebody who hasn't had that kind of experience to try and think about what it is like to spend 1,463 days, most of them expecting that maybe tomorrow is the day that you get the message and you start the preparations to stand on the gallows. Well, my time on death row could have been shorter. I'm glad it lasted as long as it did. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, once you, you resign yourself to the fact that you're going to die, there's not much more can be done to you. So, very early on in the interrogation and torture and rough tactics, my position was that, okay, they're going to hang me and this is the end. You always said you prepared to die for the struggle. My friend, it's time to die now. <laughs> so I was very hard on myself also. And um, so for me it was, I, I know I'm going to die, but I'm not going to make it easy for them. I'm going to make it as difficult as possible. And I must not lose my own humanity in the process. And um, so I, I did everything to beat the system. I smuggled in prison. Unlike the other political prisoners who didn't want to do work, because they saw it as that being too much like the criminals, I volunteered to scrub the floors and clean and pick out weeds in the courtyard. Um, it's, number one is exercise. Number two, you get your vitamin D. Of course, three, you start smuggling messages and you get to know what's going on. And one of the things we got to know is that a person by the name of Alma Nofamela was receiving visitors, contact visitors from some white people. And of course, in the black section of the jail, you wonder what it's about. Later on, we found out when Nofamela was put in the pot that uh, the people, he would tell us it's his friends from university, but it was Eugene de Kock and Terkutsev who were visiting him and basically telling him, you pain fat. Because he had killed a farmer, a white farmer, so he was their colleague, their comrade, co-hit squad person. Um, but because he had killed a white farmer in his own freelance activity, they made sure he had to take the pain. They didn't lift a finger for you. And out of that process, and egging him on, and involving lawyers for human rights, eventually the story got out. And uh, Terkutsil left the country, and landed up in Lusaka, and um, Freya Biekla, I think it was then, got the exclusive on the story. In fact, I think it's Jacques Paul, who helped Terkutsi escape out of the country because he has carried all this information. And that's, it is actually the second time the ANC got confirmation 
um, the hit, hit squads. I've got an eye on, on time because we do want to leave a little bit of time for questions as well. Um, your life post being released and the time in, in self-defense units, peace structures in Katalong and, and as a journalist I was in Katalong and Kikosa and Polar Park and places like that on a regular basis as you were ducking bullets, firing self-defense units against the hostile dwellers and so on. An extraordinary time. And then in the civil service, and the arms smuggling. Um, then you move to Kuruleni Metro, and you were drunk driving after an office party. And then, and and you just seem to keep making mistake after mistake after mistake. And in in forty odd pages, um, Brian does I think an extraordinary job of just uncovering the wrongness of all of those accusations and the malevolent motives. For them, so <laughs> you're still a thorn in the side, Robert McBride. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I am, and probably haven't learned my lesson yet. Um, the issue is, uh, I I haven't changed, and my values haven't changed from what they were when I was in the liberation struggle, and in Mkwenjo's way. <coughs> fighting for justice and the new injustice is corruption which deprives the poor of transformation and upliftment and the fight continues and as it was in the 80s if you fight against a state whose sole existence is to keep you subjugated you're going to lose it's just how costly you make to the enemy your loss. Similarly, with fighting against corruption and state capture, you're going to get hammered. And we did not have, in the 80s, an independent judiciary. We do have now. And to a large extent, they have been our redemption, our saviors our salvation on our way as we try to emerge out of state capture. And the independence of the, the, the judiciary and to a large extent mistakes at all, the role played by the media in correcting, in assisting, in countering. So even if there's 10 journalists who talk crap about me, there's not a 20 that will talk, will correct it. Sometimes in a nice way, in a not so nice way. But uh, I have been a victim mostly with journalists who are inexperienced, who are shallow, who are looking for the scoop that gets them the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and therefore they don't care about facts and they don't care to look deeper. And hence, I'm generally very reluctant to do interviews with people I know are not mature enough to handle the depth of what involves interviewing me. Because the moment someone would ask me a question based on an allegation that was long proved to be false, but continues in the belief that it's true, I'm immediately turned off. 
because I expect, and maybe unfairly so, I think young journalists should be allowed to make mistakes. But what you write and what you write in media and in the public affects lives, and therefore you don't treat it um, in a lackadaisical, insensitive fashion. Our country, South Africa, is a very serious country. Every day there's something new that's a game changer. Every day. Every day we stay open that we'll suddenly have a big turnaround. And in the process of all of that, you have journalists who are not too interested about the truth, about the bigger picture. And maybe they shouldn't be, I don't know what the journalist ethics are. Well, even if they are irritating, and some of them are, they are needed because they are good, important uh, buffer between um, state bullying, autocracy, um, unhindered I mean, corruption. If, if I may interrupt, I mean, yeah. a lot of those journalists who are reporting those things are uncritically accepting what they are told as fact by people who want to undermine you, who want you, who want to distract you from the corruption cutback, the particular corruption-busting path that you want at the moment. There are people, not all of them, were in the liberation struggle with you. Some came out of the apartheid, you know, the Transkei police force and so on. But a lot of the people who are feeding the journalists those not facts are people with whom you were in the trenches. Uh, indeed. Um, the love, money and quick riches and uh, conspicuous consumption has been too great for some of my comrades. I don't think all of them went in into the state, into positions of authority, thinking they're going to loot and grab. Some of them, I've known them in, in previous lifetime as people of honor. Um, I'm fortunate to have been unaffected by the need for luxury and shiny things. Uh, but others are not. It's important for them, and it's an indication of uh, inferiority complex that you need to be shiny before you are equal. And hence you have to have big cars and big houses and, and, and all the rest that goes with it. So some people do succumb to the temptations of, uh, of uh, and sometimes if you've had nothing all your life and suddenly a lot is put in front of you, it takes a strong character to resist. And not all of my comrades have resisted. And as a result, to protect the ill-gotten gains and the wrong decisions they made, they continue to destroy other lives. And that keeps coming out again and again in the different judicial commissions of inquiry, that they're willing to destroy other lives, thoughtlessly. Um, and I make the comparison between apartheid and corruption and state capture. Under apartheid, it was a minority benefiting at the expense of the majority. In corruption, it's a minority of elite 
benefiting at the expense of the majority. It's the same thing. And what it does is, is a slow killing because we've noted that the inequality gap is growing bigger. Now there's a lot of other reasons for it, but one of the reasons that it's not um, is that there was no corruption. So if there was no corruption, maybe the gap wouldn't be so big. And that's really the point. And the amounts involved. I mean, of course, I know some of the senior people don't know the difference between a million and a billion. But that doesn't give you an excuse to steal a billion and you think it's a million. You know, and it's no consequence. Brian, I mean, you're not one of these young journalists that, <laughs> that Robert was talking about. And, and in those last, that 40-page afterward, you, you seem 100% convinced that all of the allegations that have been laid at this man's door were maliciously made and made to distract him from the corruption-fighting path. Yes, pretty much. I mean, a lot of people remember the escapade in Mozambique where Robert was arrested uh, for, for allegedly, you know, sort of um, trying to smuggle arms. And, of course, uh, the, the terrible truth there, that the, and, and most of the press jumped on the story and for an alert journalist, all the signs were there that it was an intelligence operation and it was a, 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 a cooperation between old force people here. I mean, within hours, uh, 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 was it Lapis Lapis who declared you yeah. guilty? Um, within hours, when he was in South Africa, you know, get, comes on the radio and Lapis goes on the radio and says he's guilty. And then he gets put on. He gets put on the investigative unit. So you know, it was, it was a stitch up. But there were all the signs there, if journalists had been attentive, that it was an intelligence operation. Uh, if the person involved had been perhaps a more cautious person than Robert McBride, who conferred with some people, uh, one or two, three people in in, in uh, uh, intelligence, more cautious person who said, "I want a letter from the boss." <laughs> okay, but then that sort of person doesn't then do what Robert does, and, and, and particularly um, uh, when he was head of IPID, uh, they had to go to the, um, uh, the High Court in Pretoria where the judge issued uh, a, a, a decree saying that senior policemen under investigation for corruption could not, after they were under investigation, mount a, what the judge called, revenge uh, investigate. That was what was happening, and it, dirty tricks and so on. So it's, it's all there, and, and, you know, it just, interestingly, uh, in terms of, of people who don't uh, pay attention to sources, the source for, that Beckett Thaler used to whisper in the ears the ANC members on the uh, uh, police committee, which declined to renew this contract uh, was entirely bogus and the minister knew. So it's not just journalists who use, uh, misuse there is, information. There is an enormous amount in the book that we haven't touched. Um, uh, the, the, um, the falling in love with Paula McBride, uh, Paula Layden as she was before she became Paula McBride and the extraordinary work that she did. I, I actually have interviewed Paula much more than I've interviewed 
Robert, because in those early 90s, I was interviewing her a lot about that process. And the, the story, which is not told enough about how Robert's intervention prevented a grabber being bought at an inflated sum with that inflated sum of money going to buy votes for Jacob Zuma at, at Nazrek. That's a story that's not told enough and it's told beautifully in this book. So there, there's a lot more than we've got to in the uh, 55 minutes that we have been chatting. Uh, we would normally have stopped after 55 minutes and I'm scared to say um, who would like to ask questions because then 20 hands will go up and then we'll be here until midnight. So um, is there anybody who desperately, urgently wants to ask a question? Otherwise, Robert will stay seated here and you can sign books. There's a desperate person over there. Thank goodness there's only one. Or 
difficulties or inconvenience um, to protect the democracy that we have uh, and to fight against a scourge of corruption. So um, I might have become a teacher. Uh, in fact, I was studying to be a teacher. I'm not sure if I would have joined the military um, or the police. I'm not sure at that stage if we were not South Africa and somewhere else. I, I really used to enjoy welding and doing boiler making, so I might have been a welder or boiler maker and worked as that for a while and enjoyed do honest day's work in Kamal. Um, um, Anton Lebowski, I don't know, killed him. I was in prison when it happened, uh, but we heard about it, and there were some names mentioned, including names related to Civil Cooperation Bureau. Um, yeah. Uh, read Anton Smuts's book, um, you know, one of many which goes into that story in some detail and gives some pretty... David Smuts, a big part of David Smuts. Um, okay, but it, this really is a fascinating piece of South African history about a very interesting adventurer, and it's well worth buying and reading and then getting Robert to sign it for you, Brian. Thank you very much for writing, and Robert, thanks very much for chatting with us.